Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series. Podcast episodes are available on www.vhha.com and on popular podcast hosting sites and apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and many others. Episodes of the podcast also air each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, and 820 a.m. across Central Virginia. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to pcfpodcast at vhha.com. Again, that is PCF podcast at vhha.com. And today we're pleased to be joined by Mark Lawrence, the Vice President of Governmental and External Affairs at Roanoke-based Carilion Clinic, a multi-hospital health system. Mark is also the chairman of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Advocacy Council. He's going to have a conversation with us today about the upcoming legislative special session at the Virginia General Assembly and much more. With that, welcome to the program, Mark. Well, good morning, Julian. It's my pleasure to be on with you today. Well, we're glad to have you. And let's just get right into it. The legislative special session that I mentioned, that's set to commence next Tuesday, August 18th. We're recording this on Wednesday, August the 12th. Governor Northam has called the legislature back to Richmond to address a $200 million state budget shortfall due to the economic downturn associated with COVID-19, as well as criminal justice reform issues. The needs for social distancing during the pandemic means the session won't be held inside the historic state capitol in Richmond, Mark. So let's set the scene for people about what to expect, where the action will be, and how things are likely to unfold in the days and perhaps weeks ahead. Glad to talk about that. It's going to be a very different session. We saw a glimpse of that in April when the General Assembly returned to Richmond to conduct their annual reconvened or veto session where they were meeting separately. And like the normal days where they're in the Capitol for the reconvened session and, and the same as what we'll see next week with a different venue, the Senate was meeting in one part of the capital city, the House was meeting in the other. So the ability for them to have their shuttle conversations back and forth was certainly different. You didn't have the typical crowds around that you would for a legislative session, including folks like me and other advocates for their organizations. And so next week, when they gather on Tuesday, the Senate will be meeting in the Science Museum and the House will be meeting in the Siegel Center at Virginia Commonwealth University. So they will be meeting in separate venues a couple of miles apart, and there will be very limited access in terms of people shuttling in and out of the two facilities to interact with the members of the Senate and members of the House. So just from a organizational structural standpoint, it will be a very different session than what we are accustomed to in January and February and every other year March when they're meeting in the Capitol. And so what do you expect the schedule to be? We know that they're supposed to gavel in on August 18th, and then there's some suggestion that they may adjourn not too long thereafter, and then there will be some meetings in the interim on the committee level before members come back to take any potential formal action on budgetary revisions. That's consistent with what I've heard, Julian. It appears that they will meet and approve their procedural resolution that will set the parameters on how the special session will be conducted. But unlike other special sessions where they then get into the business of the assembly, it's my understanding at this point, you know, things can change between today and next Tuesday, the 18th, but it appears that the only real business of the day will be to convene for the procedural rules of the session, if you will, and then members will leave and head back home and a lot of the interim work after that will be done virtually. 
I will add that prior to the convening of the special session on Tuesday, Governor Northam will be presenting the annual budget update to the members of the various money committees, the Senate Appropriations and Finance Committee, and then the House Appropriations Committee and the House Finance Committee. But that will be a virtual presentation, unlike normal years where we're all gathered in a, a room in the Capitol or a room in the General Assembly building or this year the Pocahontas building. So that will be a virtual presentation where the governor will provide a status report on the state finances through the end of the fiscal year that ended on June 30th. And then and look ahead to what is happening for the next two years of the biennium. And what we will be dealing with is getting a snapshot from the governor, but then in the special session, the members of the General Assembly, specifically the, the money committees, then begin their work crafting amendments to the biennial budget that was adopted back in the winter. And they will be dealing with the budget shortfalls, including the one that you mentioned a few seconds ago. Well, thanks for taking us through that process, Mark. That's really informative. One of the items that are on the agenda for the healthcare community is two budget provisions that are really harmful for doctors and hospitals. And so the goal is to have those provisions removed. And those provisions would have significant impact on patients' access to care at a most inopportune time in the height of a pandemic. And those provisions essentially would cut dramatically reimbursements for physicians who provide emergency care to Medicaid patients, and then also cut reimbursements for hospitals when a patient who has been discharged is subsequently readmitted within 30 days. This is a policy that allows the state Medicaid agency to retroactively make those determinations, and it would have a disproportionate impact on people in underserved and vulnerable communities. It's also inconsistent with established federal laws and guidelines and at odds with the state's own Medicaid managed care contract language. And right now, there is litigation challenging this. Can you tell me about the engagement work that you're doing and and other colleagues of yours are doing on that particular policy question? Sure. It is a complicated issue, not only from a policy standpoint, but from a budgetary standpoint. And just a, a little more background, there are really two issues in the budget that we are dealing with that collectively have a a score, if you will, or a financial projection that is in the range north of $50 million annually. And so the the readmissions penalty and the emergency department utilization penalty are, from a policy standpoint, they're important issues. And I don't want to diminish that because managing the the Medicaid program is a big part of the budget and, and our legislators are certainly attuned to trying to do the most that they can to be responsible with our dollars, including our health care dollars. And, and so we support that initiative because managing the and being good stewards of limited resources is in the best interest of everyone. The challenge we have is that these two provisions, in many ways, are beyond a lot of our control. And so I'll use a family member as an example, an elderly family member who, from a readmission standpoint, is dealing with a lot of chronic issues. There are a lot of things beyond the emergency department's control that my family member is and and continues to deal with from a health standpoint. And so if you're in the hospital and you're discharged and then for whatever reason you come back within a 30-day period for something that may be related to the care that you received before, you're going to be penalized. And again, I, I say that a lot of those factors that influence the recovery or the stability of a patient who's been discharged are 
in the environmental setting or the home setting that the patient is living in. And that's certainly been true in, in the case of my family member. So you are really penalizing the hospitals for things that they can't control once the patient gets back into their environmental setting, either at home or in a care facility. And so that's something that we struggle with on a normal basis. But when you factor in the challenges that hospitals and providers have been managing as a part of the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, it's even more challenging because of other issues that you're having to manage at a time where the finances of our providers are really being challenged because of the planning for surge capacity, the inflationary costs that we've observed with even basic items like face masks and hand sanitizer and things like that. So the timing of this is challenging, but from a legislative standpoint, the the challenge that we have in, in advocating for either a fix of these two budget amendments or the the removal from the budget, there is a score of over fifty million associated with it. So to balance the budget, which our legislators are required to do annually, they will have to find an offset that would um, address that hole in the budget if they were to remove those two provisions. So in the case of what I've been doing, but also my colleagues with other hospitals and systems around the state, and I know that our leaders have been talking to the governor and his leadership team, the folks in the health area, but our legislators understand that it is a very challenging issue for us. And you did hit on the legalities and the consistencies with uh, federal law. That is another challenge that engages the attorneys that are out there as a part of this conversation. Absolutely. And I think that's great perspective, Mark, um, just about the factors that are beyond the control of the provider. If someone has in their home environment something that leads to, whether it's a chronic condition or the environmental factors that leads them back into a medical facility for care, that is beyond the control of the provider. And the provider has a duty and obligation to provide that care. Similarly, on the emergency department front, there is federal law, EMTALA, which requires care to be rendered to people who show up at the emergency department. So both of those things are really beyond the control of providers. And that's that's just one of the reasons among the many other issues that you cited, this is a, a concerning policy. So I appreciate you taking us through that. Let's, sure. uh, let's shift our lens a little bit more locally now. COVID-19 has been incredibly disruptive to the global community and here in the Commonwealth. And as frontline providers who are responding to the pandemic, hospitals and health systems have had to make major operational adjustments, as you just said, uh, with regards to the pandemic, uh, which has really had a significant impact on the finances of many healthcare providers, particularly in light of both the rising costs, the inflationary costs you mentioned for supplies, but also for the cancellation of non-emergency procedures this spring to free up bed space and preserve PPE. And so as a result of all of those factors, I wanted to hear a little bit from you about Carillion's perspective on how things have unfolded in response to the pandemic and where do things stand now with Carillion Clinic as a system? Well, thanks for that question, Julian. It it has been a learning process, I think, anyone you talk to, um, and it continues to be because I've learned a total a new appreciation for the word novel because the virus is something that continues to morph and change and assumptions that we were making in April are certainly being disproven. For example, there was a lot of conversation back in the early spring about once summer got here, the virus would subside and, and we would, if nothing else, catch our breath and wait for the return in the fall. Um, that also coincided with the return of the annual flu season. But as we've learned, a lot of our assumptions um, have not been what has actually played out. 
with COVID. In our case, you're right. When this really started to manifest in Virginia in March, we all, I think every system and every hospital started putting in plans, their emergency action plans or whatever phrase you want to use. But in our case, we activated our emergency action team and really engaged in trying to anticipate what we would need to be doing and planning for whatever level of COVID patients we may see. And we all anticipated the worst and tried to plan for that. In our case, the arrival of COVID was um, much slower and we didn't really see our cases here unlike what we were seeing in Northern Virginia or in the historic triangle area around Williamsburg. We didn't see the um, immediate big numbers like you saw with Northern Virginia or the Triangle. Here they arrived more slowly, but once they got here, they came with a vengeance. And so we were able to learn some lessons along the way because we didn't have the immediate surge. But we took an action even before the governor provided his executive order uh, requiring providers to discontinue non-emergency services and surgeries and procedures. We took that action because we realized that the limited availability of personal protective equipment, capacity within our hospitals, uh, planning for additional patient rooms that currently weren't really utilized for something like a pandemic. All of that surge planning we were able to do in a little more deliberate fashion just because we didn't have the immediate stress on our system and our facilities and our infrastructure like some other hospitals saw. And so um, we did learn some lessons, but one of the things that happened, and, and I'll, I'll just mention this from the standpoint of the way that policy reacted to that, when Congress started responding with the various relief packages, because we didn't have the immediate surge that maybe you saw in other parts of the country, some of the financial assistance that was intended to be directed to hospitals and health systems and other providers did not make it our way because we didn't have the COVID case numbers that you may have seen in other areas, including Northern Virginia. So at a time where patient visits were coming almost to a standstill, we were having to reserve space for what we were anticipating. You had, if you're not providing services, obviously you're not receiving um, financial reimbursement for those services. And so we had this period where cash flow really uh, started to disappear because we were providing very limited levels of service at a time where we were still planning for and starting to see more and more COVID patients showing up in our uh, facilities um, and so forth. And so whether it was starting early with the limited testing abilities because of limited supplies or protective equipment, then transitioning later, we had a benefit from the standpoint of learning from others. But once it arrived, the challenge we had was that the relief packages that were intended to, to be there to, to help prop us up during that period were packages that were designed for the early surges and not necessarily for what we are seeing today and, and what maybe the Midwest states and others are seeing with the later arrival of COVID. So it has been um, both an economic challenge and a facilities challenge for us, but we certainly are getting our share now and continue to see that at a time where in March and April, people were saying that there really would be a much lower caseload than what you were seeing in the spring. And so that's been disproven along with a lot of the other assumptions um, that came our way. And now here we are approaching mid-August and in our area, in our, in our footprint, 
that goes literally down the I-81 corridor, you're starting to see the return of college students. And the potential risk element of that is starting to increase just because of the pure numbers of people who are going to be gathering in whatever settings they're going to be. And, and that's um, not even factoring in what our, our local public K-12 systems are, are struggling with from the standpoint of when to start classes or whether to stay virtual. So it, it is an ongoing learning process, I think, for everyone. Well, that's really interesting perspective, Mark, and I, I thank you for sharing it, whether it is about the evolution of this virus and how assumptions early on, some of them bore out, some of them did not, about all the adjustments along the way, and then also the point about policy, which I think takes us back to what we were discussing earlier, whether we're talking about federal policy coming out of the U.S. Congress in Washington or whether we're talking about the budgetary policy matter uh, with reimbursements that we discussed a few moments ago. Uh, Sometimes policy, even well-intentioned policy, um, sometimes can't account for the shifts and the ebbs and the flows of real-world circumstances and how the policy will interact with that and the functions of uh, frontline agencies, in this case, healthcare providers who are doing an incredibly important and critical job uh, and how that policy can impact what they do. So that's great perspective there, Mark. Before we uh, shift gears, I did want to uh, give you a little bit of a shout out for an assist you provided back in April, a few months back. Shameless plug alert here. VHHA asked a bunch of celebrities and prominent Virginians to record thank you notes for frontline healthcare providers. And we had Hollywood celebrities and famous athletes and coaches and elected officials. And Mark, in your capacity, having served as the president of the Virginia Tech Alumni Association Board of Directors, you helped us get legendary Virginia Tech coach Frank Beamer to participate in that video project, which was a huge success and was viewed more than 150,000 times. And so I just want to publicly say thank you again for for your help with that, Mark. Well, Jillian, thank you. That was uh, that was an easy lift, even though Coach Beamer is in great demand. But I, I was very appreciative of everyone who stepped up to give that word of encouragement to our to our folks and those around the state and around the country. It was fun. It was a fun video to watch. And um, Coach Beamer, Coach Young, who's the basketball coach at Virginia Tech, others were a part of that. And I think I'll say this, it, it reflected one of the really good things that, that we've seen continue throughout COVID, and that is the tremendous response and support of our communities to help not only recognize what the frontline workers were doing, but to engage in whatever ways they could. And, and I've really got to give this shout out to folks here in, in our region and in our service area. I think one of the most moving moments for me throughout this whole experience and some have been good and some not so good, but um, whether it's people that you know who have unfortunately uh, succumbed to the virus or on the flip side of that, the really good things. Um, we had an experience here, and I know there were others like this around the state, where the first responders organized a public thank you for employees and frontline workers because our frontline folks have been spectacular, and, and I have to really emphasize spectacular throughout this ordeal and it certainly continues, but in front of Roanoke Memorial Hospital, which is our main medical center here in Roanoke, whether it was fire ladder trucks or police cars or ambulances or the um, firemen and policemen and public safety folks uh, lined up across the bridge in front of the hospital with two ladder trucks holding up a incredibly large American flag. The 
public symbolism of that thank you was really something that at the time it occurred was really, really not only timely, but it was very powerful for our employees. Um, we had firemen and police officers and first responders form lines that our employees who were changing shifts walked through. We, we've had churches that on a shift change at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. would ring their bells just to let our folks know that they were uh, thinking of them. Um, we've had thousands of meals provided to our frontline workers, and I just can't overstate just how important these and meaningful these experiences were. And I'll also say that the, the sacrifice of the frontline workers has just been remarkable. And, and you think about issues, whether it's child care, whether it's um, maintaining family safety and isolation, you've, you've had frontline workers who have, when they got home, they've changed clothes in their garage or in their car before they went in just to make sure that they weren't exposing family members and all kinds of activities like that. So whether it's providing sustenance through meal support or whether it's the public um, displays of appreciation that people have provided, the thank you notes and other things. It's just been a remarkable, uplifting experience on something that really at this point has become a, a major fatigue challenge for everybody because of the fact that we've been struggling with this now since um, early March. And it's just a great reminder that we're all in this together and frontline healthcare providers are rightly designated as heroes. Okay, now, Mark, uh, before we go, I've got a few other questions for you to give sure. uh, our sure. listeners just a bit of a sense of who you are beyond the work you do. The first one is this, Mark, and this is an entirely imaginary premise, but in the hypothetical scenario, you could imagine your final day on earth. What would your last meal be? Oh, boy, that is a tough one. Um, probably chicken cacciatore. And then the last question I have for you, Mark, is this. If you were stranded on a deserted island, what one book, <laughs> one album, and one movie would you want to take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? Uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run, if I have a music scenario there. movie, boy, that's tough because I love movies. Yeah, that's tough. Shawshank Redemption would be near the top. I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. Some things are best left unsaid. Um, and as far as the book Beyond the Bible, I'm not sure where I'll go with that one right now. Well, you can default to the Bible. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, uh, The Boss and, uh, and Shawshank Redemption with, uh, with Red and Andy Dufresne, is, those are both great choices. And so with that, that is going to bring us to the close of this episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so that you know when new episodes are available. And again, we'd like to thank our guest, Mark Lawrence of Carillion Clinic, for being with us today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Julian. You have a great day, and thanks, everyone, for all you're doing out there. 